Well, good evening, Hellos Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, to the passage our friend, my wife, Kim, read for us a moment ago, Hebrews, chapter 11. As you're finding your way there, let me uh, give you a brief update. This morning, our North Seattle Expression celebrated their one-year anniversary, which was a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's an incredible thing that God is doing up there with, with that crew, and we're grateful for Jeff Hundley and his leadership and all the disciples who are plugging in and participating in gospel ministry there. And uh, It's a joy to see the way that God multiplies his people in this city and the way that he's done that in the life of our church. And so uh, we have a lot to be grateful for looking back on this past year, and we have a lot to look forward to uh, as we move deeper into 2018 uh, by faith together, join linking arms with our North Expression and our West Seattle Expression to magnify and to multiply the gospel through this city to the ends of the earth to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. We're going after great things, and we want to go after them full throttle, full tilt, with our hearts flooded with the love that God has for us in Jesus. That is just flowing out of us in his love for this city and our neighbors to see more and more men and women come to trust in the Savior, to see his beauty, to savor his activity on their behalf as their Redeemer and as their Lord and as their King. And so that's what we're going after, and Hebrews chapter 11 is going to dial us in that direction uh, in some significant ways as we consider that together tonight. Now, before we jump in, let me voice one more prayer for us, and we will do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Jesus. We thank you for the way that you've been at work in our lives and been at work in growing us as your people and multiplying us throughout this city. God, we thank you for the grace that you've shown our North Seattle expression and the grace you're showing our West Seattle expression. God, we thank you for the grace you're showing us here in Fremont, and I pray that you would continue to shed your grace abroad in our hearts and in our lives. We know and we confess that we are unworthy of your goodness towards us, but God, you are so good to treat us so well in Christ, despite all the ways in which we fall short, all the ways in which we sin against you, all the ways in which we do not honor the image of God and those around us and the ways we fail to go after the things that you want us to go after in this city. We thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us, even in the face of all of that. And God, we pray that your love towards us in Jesus would continue to melt us and to mold us into the people you would have us be. God, I pray that we would be a church that loves this city well, that we would be a a church that blesses the city of Seattle and sees more people come to know the Savior and to savor, once again, his beauty and his work and his activity on their behalf. So God, we pray that you would use, use us as you see fit. We pray that you would move within us even now as we turn our attention to your scriptures. Would your scriptures produce a work within us that will change our lives in increasing ways? In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 28, continuing our series titled Stories of Faith, looking at this catalog of stories that are strung together, uh, reminding us of men and women who lived their lives in such a way that bore witness to the faithfulness of God in the forging of a glorious future. And so all of the stories here have this forward-looking, forward-moving direction reminding us that faith moves forward, that faith is cooperating with the promises of God and the goodness of God and the power of God and the provision of God to build his kingdom and to build his, his redemptive community in his redeemed community in this world. 
But before we jump into verse 23, let me share this with you. In 1975, there was a guy by the name of Roger Hart. Roger Hart was a child psychologist and researcher, and he conducted a study on where children felt safe to play. He focused on about 86 kids between the ages of 2 and 12 in a small town in Vermont. And so he went to this town to interview these kids, and, and he discovered that the kids at that day and age, or in that time, had what he called a remarkable freedom. He said even four- or five-year-olds traveled unsupervised throughout their neighborhoods. They just went wherever they wanted. He said by, the age, by age 10, most of them had, had the run of the entire town. And the kids' parents weren't worried either. It's kind of like my childhood growing up. I grew up in a place where I remember summer days, I would go to the far side of town to play baseball with my friends, and I would walk there through the downtown area of my little town and, and move in that direction, and my parents wouldn't think twice about it. That, that's what he's describing here. But about 40 years later, he returned to that same town in Vermont. And he went there to document the children of the children he had originally tracked in the 70s. And when he asked this new generation to show him, show him where they played alone, what he discovered just floored him. It surprised him. He said, quote, they just didn't have very far to take me, just walking around their property. And Hart would add, there's no more free range outdoors. Even when the kids are older, parents now say, I need to know where you are at all times. What he found odd, what he found odd in this study is that there was literally no more crime taking place in 2014 than what was taking place 40 years prior in the 1970s. But he said, nevertheless, there was an invisible leash that was tightened around the children in this town. And he said, the reason that is, is because over the course of those 40 years, fear has increased in the lives of the parents. And he drew this conclusion. He says, you know, fear, fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Fear of the world outside our door narrows the circle of our lives. Now, I share that with you not to challenge your parenting. I say that with you to challenge your discipleship. I believe fear is threatening to narrow the circle of many of your lives, preventing you from being about all the things that God would have you be about in this world. And when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, you're going to see this, this interchange between faith and fear. And you're going to discover in the story of Moses how our faith in Christ, our faith in the promises of God, that find their yes in Jesus, that faith is intended to overcome fear, a, a circle-shrinking fear in our lives. This is essentially what's going on in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to the first generations of Christians who were being tempted by fear. They were being oppressed and persecuted in many ways and in many angles as they were being pushed to the fringes of society because of their faith in Jesus. They were, not, they were not being treated well. The red carpet wasn't being rolled out to the church in the first century. And as a result of their faith in Jesus, they were being persecuted, oppressed, and they were, many of them were being tempted to turn back, turn back from their faith as a result of fear. And every time they would shrink back, the circle of their life would shrink. 
And the scope of their lives would, would not be nearly as broad and merely as, merely as influential and as effective as God intended them to be. And so I want to look at this passage and identify a few fears in the life of Moses that, that may be operating in our lives right now and to challenge and to hopefully encourage the kind of faith that can conquer these kinds of fears. So you have Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. The first fear we're going to look at is this. There's, there's one fear that plagues many of our lives. Is that we, I might describe it this way. It is the fear of being found out. It's the fear of being found out. Here's what I mean by this. When you look at verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that, his, that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, although Moses is the central figure in this passage, we're first kind of cued into, in verse 23, to the faith of his parents, to the faith of his mom and dad, that they lived by faith. They trusted the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's, that's where their faith resided. And when Moses was born, he entered a world that was threatening to his life. Because at that time, Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the known world, had issued an edict saying every Hebrew male baby that is born must be thrown into the Nile, that must be put to death. And the reason for that is because the people of Israel were living in Egypt as slaves and their numbers were increasing and because they were working so hard, they were getting really strong. And so Pharaoh and the other Egyptian rulers and societal leaders were getting intimidated by the number of the Israelites as well as the strength of the Israelite people as they were growing under this oppression and under this persecution. And so the Pharaoh said, we've got to put a stop to this. We need to put the brakes on this population that is growing so strong under our rule. And he said, here's the solution. The solution is to start putting male baby boys to death. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. The Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. This was the world that Moses was born into. But praise God, Moses was born, into, was born to a mom and a dad who lived by faith. And in their faith, they refused to be enslaved to the fear of being found out. Here's what I mean by that. When you consider the way they respond to Moses. It says, when they saw baby Moses, they said he was beautiful. And as a result of seeing this beautiful child, they were not afraid of the king's edict, and so they, defied, they, they decided to defy what the king said was law or what the king said was rule or what the king said was mandatory. Now, when it says that they saw the baby, that was, they saw that their baby was beautiful, that don't draw the implication, well, if Moses was an ugly baby, they would have thrown him into the Nile. That's not where we should go, or that's not the implication we should draw from this moment. But nevertheless, they saw that this baby was beautiful, and as a result, fear was dispelled from their lives, and they did not follow the king's edict. What they decided to do then was to hide their baby for three months, to hide their baby for three months, and when you consider what would have happened to them had they been found out, it wouldn't have gone well. Had they been found out, they would have been, no doubt, tortured and put to death. They, too, perhaps would have been thrown into the Nile River along with all the other Hebrew babies. This is the fear that is being overcome in their lives, this fear of being found out, this fear that would keep them from taking risks Risking their lives for the sake of loving and serving another person created in the image of God. This beautiful child named Moses. 
Now, when you consider their faith, understand that faith, uh, what they see in Moses, it's really interesting. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 reads a lot like Hebrews chapter 11. Because in Acts chapter 7 is another chapter where uh, Stephen is delivering a sermon, this disciple named Stephen, he's, and he's declaring kind of redemptive history. He's basically walking through the story of the Bible. He's doing precisely what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 11. And when it comes to Moses' story, listen to the detail he points out in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. He says, at this time Moses was born, and get this, he was beautiful in whose sight? He was beautiful in God's sight. Acts chapter 7, verse 20. So think about that. Moses' mom and dad looked at the child and said, beautiful. God looked at the child and said, beautiful. What do you see about faith there? You, you begin to discover that faith is about learning to see the world from God's perspective. Faith sees the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly. So they see this beautiful baby child who's under the threat of death, and instead of following through with that and cooperating with the king's edict, they hide the baby for three months, defying his command, and had they been found out, no doubt they would have been put to death. You see, faith is about seeing the world from God's perspective and choosing accordingly. When, we can, when it comes to this fear of being found out, this is the fear that keeps disciples from taking risks in their love and in their service to other human beings, to other people created in the image of God. It is this fear that keeps us from defying the darkness of this world. We don't want to defy the darkness of this world because if we do, we may be found out. If we do, it may be exposed and we might invite and solicit discomfort, inconvenience, or even harm upon our lives. It is this fear that shrinks the circle that is surrounding so many Christians' lives right here, right now. And it is this fear that God, by his grace, wants to conquer by showing us, showing us this type of faith. It's a type of faith that, that characterized Martin Luther King Jr.'s life in the 50s and 60s when he was advocating for a better treatment of African Americans in this country and he was going to bat for his people and he was speaking out and he was advocating and he was protesting in civil ways so that these people who were being mistreated and oppressed in this country might be so no longer. And there was a moment when Martin Luther King Jr. was delivering a sermon and he used an analogy that is very memorable. He drew the analogy between a thermometer and a thermostat. And he said, essentially, too many Christians are living their lives as thermometers. You know what a thermometer does, right? A thermometer simply registers the temperature in the room. A thermometer doesn't change anything. A, th a thermometer just reflects that which is already true about the space in which we are in. And he's saying Christians in every generation must reject that way of living, must reject the fear that drives us into just registering and reflecting back to the world what the world already prioritizes, what the world already values, what the world is already like. He's saying, no, Christians aren't called to live as thermometers. Christians are called to be thermostats. And you know that a thermostat changes things. Thermostats affect the temperature in the room. Thermostats dictate what life is going to be like in that space. And essentially, this is what the people of God are called to be in the world that is. 
we're called to dictate what life is really going to be like in this world, that we might live lives of love and service, that we might make sacrifices and do, go to hard places, do hard things to care for people who are not being cared for in this city or in this culture or in this world. This is the call of Christ upon us as his people. This is the call of the church to set the temperature, not just reflect the temperature. We are to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. We are to give voice to the voiceless. We are to help the helpless. We are to provide hope to the hopeless. This is what we do as followers of Christ. But if we're plagued by this fear of being found out, if we're too afraid to take the risks that type of life requires... Well, then the circle of our lives and the circle of our church is going to shrink and we're not going to find ourselves as influential, as influential in the city as God intends for his people to be as they live as salt and light, as they live as as thermostats in the world that is, moving the world towards the world that is to come. So I wonder, are you too comfortable with the current temperature of this world? Are you too comfortable with the way things are right now? Is that why you don't want to think about the refugee crisis? Is that why you don't want to think about racism in all its various forms, from personal, interpersonal, to systemic? Is, is that why you, you kind of turn a blind eye to crises and things that are wreaking havoc on people's lives in this city or in this country or in this world at this time? Is it possible you are far too comfortable with the current temperature of things? And if that is the case, let me... Let me encourage you, let me encourage you to consider the the example Moses' parents give us. Consider the practicality of your faith in Jesus. That faith sees the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly. It makes decisions based on God's perspective, not our perspective, not the government's perspective, not the society's perspective, but from God's perspective. That's what we're choosing and acting in light of. That's what faith does. In The Lord of the Rings, Uh, fantasy book written by J.R.R. Tolkien, there's a moment where one of the heroes, Aragorn, is having a conversation with a lady named Eowyn. And Eowyn is a woman who wants to be a part of the battle. She wants her life to count. She knows that the shadow of Mordor is stretching too far and life in Middle-earth is being disrupted and inconvenienced and hindered. And she she knows that, that brave soldiers are going to fight the battle against those dark forces to push them back. And she wants to be a part of it. And when Aragorn learns about her desire, he's taken aback and he asks her, well, what are you afraid of? Like, is there anything you're afraid of, lady? And uh, she responded with these words. She said, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. She said, I'm afraid of a cage. I'm afraid to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. In other words, she was afraid of wasting her life. If you're going to be afraid of anything, that's a good thing to be afraid of. Be afraid of wasting your life living like a thermometer and not changing things and provoking change like a thermostat. That's the type of thing we want to be afraid of. And what you see in the lie in verse 23 is the faith that's making a practical difference in Moses' mom and dad's life. It would serve his benefit. It would serve his welfare. It would serve the welfare of Moses and all the people that Moses would later, would later lead. Now, when you shift from verse 23 into verse 24, we're introduced to a second fear. 
And this second fear rises in Moses' life after, after a lot of things happen between verse 23 and 24. After Moses' parents hid him for three months, eventually they said, well, we can't keep him hidden this way any longer. So they took baby Moses, they put him in a basket, they floated him down the river. And then in a miraculous twist of providence, Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby in a basket. She finds him, she follows him, falls in love with him, takes him in as her own. She adopts baby Moses. And so Moses would spend the next 40 years growing up as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He became a member of the household of the very one who was trying to stomp out all the Hebrew baby boys. It's wild sovereignty. It's wild providence. It is God doing the type of thing that only God can do. So Moses, 40 years, growing up as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. And as a result, he was awarded all the privileges that would come for being a member of that household. All the opportunities for education, all of the wealth, all of the power, all of the prestige, it was all his. But at some point in time in his life, Something changed, and he realized he needed to make a choice. He needed to make a decision. He, and that decision is talked about in verse 24. Listen to, what, listen to what is read. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, that's about 40 years later, there came a moment when he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, I love this language, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see, this second fear that we're talking about, faith overcoming, is, the, is what we might describe it as the fear of missing out. It's the fear of missing out that you see being overcome by faith in Moses' life. Although Moses had all the power, all the prestige, all the pleasure that could be given a human being at that time, all of it was his, but there came a point when he renounced it and he turned his back upon it. He turned his back on all the things that were available to him being a prince, so to speak, in Egypt. He turned his back upon it by faith, by faith. He said, look, I'm, I'm going I'm to choose rather and being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, I'm going to choose to be a member of the Israelite people, even if at that time the people of Israel were oppressed, the people of Israel were slaves, the people of Israel were on the low ring of the social ladder. And Moses says, I think that's better than being where I am now. Why is that? Well, because he wasn't enslaved to the fear of missing out. He wasn't enslaved to the things that he was giving up to identify with the people of God and to be about the promises of God in the world. So he turned his back on all the privilege and opportunity that he had, and he went after the things of God. His, his faith, in faith, he overcame the fear of missing out. You see, I think this is the fear. I think this is the fear that prevents so many people from enduring in their faith in Jesus. I think the fear of missing out is what hinders so many of us from following Jesus persistently, from following Jesus with any level of perseverance and endurance because at some point in time in our journey with Jesus, we've become tempted to look over our shoulder or to look over the fence at other people's lives and we begin to compare and contrast their life with our lives and at first glance it may seem, man, they seem to be having a lot more fun in this world than I am. 
You know, they, they don't seem to have any restraints or any filters on the decisions that they're making. They're just going for it. They're not stressing about what God wants, and they're not worrying about obedience. They're just doing their thing. That seems to be a lot more enjoyable than the life I'm currently living. The cost of discipleship seems a little more intense. And when that happens, the fear of missing out arises, and it threatens our endurance. It threatens our ability to keep walking by faith, trusting trusting that Jesus is better than anything we have given up or that we will give up in our obedience to him. You see, I love what C.S. Lewis said to a group that he was, he gave a lecture to one day on all world religions and he was comparing and contrasting world religions and afterwards there was a student who stepped up and asked him a question. He says, okay, in your opinion, what is the best religion? And I love what Lewis said. He said in response, he said, well, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. While it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. You can worship yourself if you want. You can indulge yourself if you want. You can pursue all the pleasures that sin has to offer you if you want. You can do that, but understand that that life will not last. Understand that the pleasure that sin brings to a person, that pleasure is a fleeting pleasure. It is, it is going to fade. It is going to disintegrate. It will not last forever. And so while it lasts, yes, the worshiping oneself is best, but what Moses discovered is that there was a better way. There was a deeper joy to be apprehended by faith, by believing in God and believing in the promises of God and making choices that corresponded with that faith. You see, faith not only sees the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly, faith assesses the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly. Faith assesses and weighs out the choices that we're making, wondering, yeah, that sin would be enjoyable. There's a lot of pleasure to be had right there, but I also believe that that pleasure is gonna be fleeting so why would I waste my life pursuing something that's not going to last when I have an opportunity to live for that which does? We should consider what Timothy Keller mentioned one day when he said, you know, a person is only as durable as that which he or she loves most. Your life is only as durable. It will only endure to the degree. Uh, in, it will, you're only as durable as that which you love most, that which you prize the most, that which you are going after in this world. In Moses' instance, he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cherish the promises of God and the people of God, even if that means I have to step down from all the pleasures I have in Egypt and identify with an oppressed people. He's saying, look, that's better for me than anything else in this world. He assessed the world by faith, saying that the pleasure of sin is fleeting, the world he's in is fading, but God lasts forever. You see, when you assess the world from God's perspective, you gotta come, the only conclusion you can logically come to is that the very best, the very best that this world has to offer you, the very best is only temporary. The very best isn't going to last. And so when you assess the world from God's perspective, you're saying, okay, that's not gonna last. It may be good in a moment, but it's not gonna carry me through to the end of my days. It's certainly not gonna, it's not the wave I'm gonna ride into eternity. That's because that, that wave won't last. That wave will fade away. This is essentially the choice that, Moses made, and in making that, he shows us that faith can overcome the fear, the fear of missing out. There's a guy by the name of Thomas Oden, a recent theologian who, well, he, uh, a late theologian who died a couple of years ago. He, he 
described the human condition and the human heart this way, and I would put his thoughts before you to consider. He says, you know, if a person chooses, if a person chooses something that is finite, that is something that is temporary, something that has an expiration date, if you choose something finite and you put it at the centerpiece of your affections where that, that finite thing becomes most valuable to you, he said you've got to be very careful because that means you will live your life in a perpetual state of anxiety. You will live your life in a perpetual state of fear. Why is that? Well, because any finite thing you put at the center of your identity and the center of your affections, that finite thing has an expiration date and you're always going to worry and wonder, when is it going to end? When is it going to go away? This can't last. And so you're going to live in a constant state of anxiety and a constant state of fear. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is not to put something finite in the centerpiece of your identity, not to hold something finite as most valuable in your affections and in your thinking and in the life that you are leading. Even good things, even obviously good things, like let's say personal health, for example. Health is a great thing. Health is a good thing. Health should be pursued and, uh, and uh, cherished by us. But health can't occupy that central position. Why? Because no matter how good your diet is, no matter how often you exercise, no matter how well you are taking care of your body, eventually your body will expire. It's not going to last. Or you think beauty. If you put beauty there, what's going to happen? Beauty fades. All the beauty in this world fades eventually. So we don't want to put something finite in the centerpiece of our identity, valuing something finite above all else. Why? Because it's fleeting. It is fading. It will expire and it will lead to a constant state of anxiety and fear. We will live our lives plagued by the fear of missing out. And this is the fear that God, by his grace, wants to dispel by showing us what faith does. And faith, again, sees the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly. Faith assesses the world from God's perspective and chooses accordingly. This is what is happening in the storyline of Moses. So when you consider this dynamic, it's a pretty powerful message where one of the overall themes and overall messages of the book of Hebrews is this one refrain that kind of gets echoed in different ways from start to finish, and it's the big idea that Jesus is better. It's recognizing that Jesus is better than any other person, any other place, any other thing in the universe. It's seeing Jesus' beauty, it's seeing his value and allowing his beauty and his value to dispel all other fears from our lives, to, to put all the other things we value in our life in the proper place so that they're not central, but they're, they can be present. You know, take care of yourself, pursue health. Beauty's a good thing to behold. And, and uh, yes, that's fine, but let it be in its proper place. Put Jesus as the centerpiece in your affections, as the centerpiece in your in your life. So that's the second fear you see faith overcoming in the story of Moses. But then when you get to verse 28, in verse 28, we're introduced to perhaps the most intimidating fear that we have, and perhaps the biggest fear that, that it's so big and it's so intense that we live our lives trying to ignore that this fear exists. Check it out, verse 28. We read that by faith, Moses kept or instituted the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that what? So that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
The fear that I'm talking about here in verse 28 is the fear of dying out. It's the fear of dying out. It's the fear of death. This is essentially the fear that's being targeted in verse 28. You see, back in Moses' day, after about 40 years after he left Egypt, he lived in the wilderness for about 40 years before God showed up in a bush that was burning and it wasn't consumed and God spoke to Moses saying, Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to deliver my people from their bondage, from slavery. You're gonna go to the Pharaoh and you're gonna say, okay, it's time for you to let my people go. And this was an intimidating thing at first glance. Moses at first was very, he was afraid to do that. He wasn't sure if that was a risk he was willing to take. So he dialogued with God. He interacted with God. And eventually God dispelled the fear of being found out or the fear of taking risks from his heart. And he went back to Egypt. And he went back to Egypt not believing that he would be enticed back to the pleasures of that place. Because why? Because his faith in God had dispelled the fear of missing out. So he wasn't going to go back to Egypt and all of a sudden feel like, oh man, life is so much better here than it is in the woods. I'm going to jump back on Pharaoh's side. That wasn't the fear that was operating in his life. He was living by faith. And so God would say, Moses, you're going to go. You're going to confront the most powerful ruler in the universe. And you're going to tell him, let my people go. And that's what he did. The Pharaoh didn't cooperate. He did not respond positively to his message. And as a result, God used Moses to bring 10 plagues upon the land of Egypt. Well, long story short, when you get to the 10th plague, the 10th plague is the most intense. The 10th plague concerned death. It concerned the death of the firstborn, not just the firstborn of Egyptians, but even the firstborn of the Israelites who did not respond to God's instructions about how to escape it. And so God told Moses, he said, look, the angel of death is about to come in, the destroyer is about to sweep through Egypt, and the firstborn in all these households is going to die unless, unless people respond in faith to my words, and they choose to do what I'm telling them to do. And what I'm telling them to do is to take their, an unblemished lamb, their most prized possession in the home, slaughter the blood of that lamb, and then take its blood and apply it to the doorpost. The families and the households that apply the blood, that live under the blood of the lamb, when death comes, when judgment comes, that judgment, that death is going to leap over their household. It's going to bypass them and move on to other households that don't have the blood. And so this is why in verse 29, I would say the fear, or verse 28, the fear that is being targeted here is the fear of dying out. It's the fear of death. It's the fear knowing that death is coming to every household in this world. Death is going to hit each and every one of us. Death is a reality that we cannot escape. It is a reality that we cannot hide from no matter how hard we try. And we live in a culture that tries really hard to hide from our mortality and to hide from the reality of death. There was a time in our culture when a person's deathbed was their own bedroom. And when they were dying, the whole family was exposed to what was happening. The smells would fill the house. Everything was there in the home. Even kids were exposed to death in the home. But over time, our, our culture began to sanitize death. And so what did we do? We took the deathbed out of the house and we put it in hospitals and other hidden rooms so that we don't have to be confronted with the reality of our mortality. And studies say that as a result, today, we do not handle death as well as previous generations. We don't talk about it nearly as often. We do not grieve well enough. We have hidden from death, and as a result, our psyches cannot handle it all that well. Certainly not in a healthy manner. But then there was also a time in our day where Christians would think about death and mortality more than any other people group in the country. 
There was a time when church buildings were being built and they would always be built next to cemeteries. And when disciples of Jesus would go to the church building to to worship together, they would walk through tombstones. Why would they do that except to remind us, look, death is coming to every household in this world and we cannot hide from the reality of our mortality. We must face it, we must embrace it, or we will never uh, move through it. And essentially, this is what Moses called the people of Israel to do in Egypt. He said, look, death is coming. God's judgment is falling. But there is a way to escape. You can escape it by applying the blood of the lamb, that salvation is available. This is what we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, that is, everybody's going to die, Just as that is true, and after that comes judgment, meaning death is a prelude to judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's saying, yes, death is coming to everyone, but there's a way of escape. And the way you overcome the fear that you should feel of dying out and facing judgment, the way you overcome that fear isn't by ignoring the reality of death. And it isn't by ignoring the fact that death is a prelude to judgment. The way you deal with that fear is by putting your faith in the Lamb, by trusting in the blood of Jesus who died so that your sins could be forgiven, who died so that you might have a relationship with the God who made you, so that you might be saved and redeemed, so that you might escape the darkness of this world. You might escape the fleeting pleasures of this world. That you might escape the fact that, yes, death is coming and it is a prelude, or it is a prelude to judgment. You can move through that. Why? Because you're putting your faith, you're putting your faith in the only one, the only one who can save your life. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, when you look to the Lamb, so to speak, when you look to the Lamb, that's when the fear of dying out begins to lessen. That's when the fear of dying out begins to fade away. And all of a sudden, you can take the kinds of risks that you might be afraid of taking as a follower of Jesus in this world. All of a sudden, you can go to the hard places and do the hard things. All of a sudden, you can, you can flee from the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world because you know you're living for something that lasts And all of a sudden, when you do meet your death day in this world, you can meet your death day with your head held high, knowing that death will not have the final say in your life, that ultimately death will pass over you the way death passed over the households of Israel in Egypt. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the salvation we're given by Jesus. This is the only kind of faith that can conquer fear in our lives. And when this faith is functioning, when we're choosing in light of this kind of faith, the circle of our lives will increase, it will broaden, it will grow and widen beyond anything you ever dreamed possible. And you will find yourself being about the things that God is about in this city, being about the things that God is about in your life, being about the things that God is about in this world. That's your life begins to broaden and the horizon begins to lengthen. Nothing is shrinking. Nothing is decreasing. Everything's growing. Everything's increasing. That's the faith we live by. That's the gospel that we believe. But ultimately, it comes. Ultimately, it gets to this point where you have to do exactly what Moses does in verse 25 where there came a point in his life where he had to make a choice. 
He had to choose who he was going to live for. He had to choose whether he was going to live and preserve his own life or if he was going to follow in the footsteps of his mom and dad who risked their lives for his benefit. He had to make a choice of whether or not he was going to live for himself or if he was going to live by faith in his God. And there came a moment where he made a decisive break and he turned his back on everything that the world was giving to him in that moment. And he identified with Christ and he identified with Christ's people and he journeyed the rest of his life by faith under that reality. Living by faith, not by fear. But again, it comes to making a choice. And some of you haven't made that choice. You know right now that you're not a follower of Christ. You, you haven't chosen Jesus. You're not identified with Christ. And you're not identifying with followers of Christ and the people of God in this city and in this world. And, and I would encourage you, check that. I would warn you, death is coming. And I say that not necessarily to frighten you, but to sober you up. And to consider whether or not you are really prepared to go through death, enter judgment on your own. Or if you're going to go through death, enter judgment with a dependency upon Jesus to step in the gap and say, hey, I've got this one covered. My blood is sufficient for their forgiveness. My blood is sufficient for their salvation. My blood is sufficient for them to be a part of your eternal kingdom when he represents you before holy God. He represents you before holy father. So if you haven't made that choice, let me implore you to choose Jesus. Turn your eyes towards Christ and fix your faith upon him, believing that he's beautiful, believing that he's valuable, believing that he is sufficient for your salvation, for your hope, for your eternal life. But there comes a point where you have to choose. And I would encourage you, choose Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these realities and as your Holy Spirit continues to impress them upon us and to instruct us by them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring clarity to our eyes of faith so that we might look to Jesus, that we might trust Jesus, that we might believe in Jesus. And I pray that any fear that may be threatening to shrink our lives right now, I pray that that fear would be dispelled. God, as we look to Jesus now, would you draw near to us and encourage us and strengthen us and make us durable people who can endure life in this world as we live towards the world that is to come? God, thank you for the fact that we can live by faith and not by fear, and I pray that that would become true in a, in a functional, experiential way for each and every disciple in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.